This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. I'm speaking today with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Gordon S. Wood about his new book, Friends Divided. You tell a story, Gordon, of the 50-year friendship maintained by John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And by so doing, you have written an extraordinarily fine book about the founding of the American government and the meaning of the American idea. Why don't we begin where you begin the book, with the end of the story, and then we can go back to the beginning. And we begin with what you, the chapter you call the eulogies. It's the Jubilee celebration. That is the 50th anniversary of the writing of the Declaration of Independence, which coincided with the death of two of the uh, signers, and in fact, on the committee that drafted it, the Declaration of Independence. So it was such a coincidence that it seemed to uh, to the American people to be providential. I mean, that Je- Jefferson and, and Adams die on the same day, yeah, July that's 4th. That's right, July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years after the writing of the Declaration. And uh, this seemed to be something of a miracle. Of course, there was a little bit of... Uh, uh, effort made to make that day, Jefferson asked his doctor, he knows he's dying, what day is it? And the doctor says, it's July 3rd. He says, oh, well, he, he manages to stay alive for another day and, and, and make, it, uh, make it perfect. He dies in Monticello, and um, Adams dies in Braintree. And when Adams dies, he says, he doesn't know that Jefferson of has course, died, and he course. says that Jefferson survives. Right. Uh, of course, technically, uh, he's wrong because uh, Jefferson died five years, five hours earlier. But in a larger symbolic sense, uh, he, he's, he's right. Jefferson goes on and survives in a way that, uh, in our consciousness, in a way that, uh, that uh, Adams does not. Jefferson is in a very different league, a celebrity league uh, uh, at the time and, and for us ever since. Adams simply doesn't have the kind of status in our memory that, that Jefferson does, and, and that's understandable. He's, he's a very different kind of founder. When do they first meet each other? They meet at the Continental Congress, um, in the Second Continental Congress. Adams has been in both Continental Congresses, the first and the second, and Jefferson joins. He, he was ill, and he couldn't make the first. He joins... Adams in the second. He's younger than Adams, eight years, and so he he defers to Adams, and Adams likes that, and uh, they are both radicals. That is to say, they're both eager for independence from Great Britain. So uh, they uh, they become part of the vanguard pushing for the break, uh, and it's natural that they would be assigned to the committee uh, to draft the Declaration of Independence. Well, let's talk about the differences between them, the, the what you call the contrasts. It's when they meet in Philadelphia in the Second Continental Congress, that's 1775? 1775. They, they essentially are from different countries. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, Virginia, uh, which is the largest colony uh, at the time, uh, by far. I mean, it, Virginia dominated the, uh, the, the group of colonies uh, in a way that no other uh, state ever has dominated the country. Uh, it's the richest, it's the most populous, but it's 40% of its population is enslaved, and it's uh, dominated by planter aristocrats, 
in a way that Massachusetts is a relatively egalitarian society, uh, and ja- Adams comes from a very middling sort of background, uh, and where Jefferson is a, a planter of great wealth. He inherits uh, slaves from, uh, and land from his father, and then from his father-in-law when he marries, uh, he gets more land and more slaves. So by 1770, early 70s, he is one of the wealthiest planters in, in all of the colony of Virginia. Uh, Adams' uh, wealth is uh, modest. He's not a poor man. He earns uh, quite a bit, but he's never the rich, from his legal practice. He, almost everything he owns uh, comes from legal practice. And uh, he is not one of the wealthiest members of that Massachusetts society, something that always rankled him because he was, uh, uh, he was scorned often by some of the wealthy members of the, of the Massachusetts elite. So they not only come from different backgrounds and different societies, they're both hierarchies, but they're of a different kind of a hierarchy. But the talk about their, you know, the differences in their appearance and temperament. Well, they couldn't differ more. They're sort of a a, a Mutt and Jeff, of course, that dates me, but how many people know who Mutt and Jeff are? But uh, Jefferson's a tall, lanky, gangling, uh, reserved in character uh, and temperament. Adams is short, stout. He confesses that he was but an ordinary man in in appearance. His temperament is different too. He's not. Uh, he, he's uh, excitable. He's irascible. Uh, Jefferson is very self-contained, very very conscious of being polite, and, and I think that politeness uh, hurts him in a way. Although it's a secret of his success. It makes him, because he never says exactly what he feels about people, he never says to their face, uh, he is often accused of being disingenuous and being, uh, being two-faced. Adams has the opposite problem. He tells people what he thinks and gets himself in trouble over and over again. But once you got to know Adams, he could, and he uh, trusts you, he could be quite amiable. Although he's always facetious, he's, uh, he's sarcastic, he makes jokes, and he razzes people. He razzes Jefferson all the time. Uh, and and uh, Jefferson comes to appreciate it uh, because he, la- he, he grows to love the man. They have a great relationship uh, at the outset because they're both radicals, but what really what cements the friendship is their experience abroad in the 1780s when Jefferson, the widower, is, is a minister. He, both of them are ministers in France at first, and then later uh, when uh, Adams goes to London as minister to Great Britain, uh, Jefferson remains in Paris as minister to, to, to France. Uh, but they, exchange, they go back and forth. Actually, Jefferson visits uh, Adams in London, and uh, he, he, he gets along with Abigail. Actually, he, Jefferson becomes a member of the family and uh, takes John Quincy, Adams' uh, eldest son, to, uh, to, to a museum or to a symphony. The families mingle, and, and Jefferson actually flirts a little with Abigail. There's a wonderful little account where he writes a letter. He says, I was going to buy a, a, a statue of Venus for, for, the, for your dining room, but then I, I realized having two such Venuses in the, in the dining room would be too much. I mean, that kind of... <laughs> That's Jefferson's attempt at... at uh, well, that's Je- Jefferson's courtesy, and, right. that, and that's his uh, politesse. Right. You know. He, he, you know, the Enlightenment was very uh, uh, obsessed by uh, civility and, and politeness, uh, and, and Jefferson takes it very seriously and, and lectures his uh, sons-in-law 
uh, about the importance of politeness. That is, not, not saying what you think, taking account the feelings of other people. Uh, and, of course, Jefferson, uh, in doing that, uh, ends up uh, appearing to be not entirely honest. I mean, one of the s- sad facts of politeness is that you're, you can end up being, uh, seeming to be two-faced. There was never anything two-faced about Adam. <laughs> no. He was honest, but honest to the point where he would uh, often say things that he shouldn't have said. He would even, during in 1777, he, even in the Congress, he, he, he calls into question the uh, reputation of General Washington, which was uh, sacred to many people. He had that kind of... But people respected him because he was such a, an advocate for independence. Uh, he, he lives off that that reputation, and, and that's why he does attain uh, the positions he, he has because of his leadership in, in probably nobody in the Congress was more important in driving the Congress towards independence than Adams. In other ways, they're also different. Of course, they're different in their political attitudes. In fact, I can't think of any major issue with the exception of, of the desire for independence in which they, didn't, which they differed. Uh, they 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 differed over human nature, over the nature of uh, of America. Well, let's talk about a little bit about those things. How do they differ about human nature? Well, Jefferson's a, a, a radical of uh, 18th century type radical. He was optimistic about people. Uh, he thought they were uh, basically um, sociable and and willing to love other people. All you had to do was get the the interfering monarchical government out of the way and let the free flow of affection tie you to other people. That that's that's the radical position. By you know William Godwin in England is a radical and often called the founder of anarchism. Well, he's he's part of that whole crowd of Paine and and Godwin and Jefferson is is right in that that group. He's not as radical as Godwin, but he, that's the kind of radicalism that separates the liberal of the 18th century from the liberal of of today. Adams, on the other hand, is uh, doubtful about uh, human nature. He's pessimistic about the future. He has a sour and cynical view. He's a conservative, but not a Ronald Reagan-type conservative. uh, He has a cynical view of human nature. People are not uh, nice uh, and and uh, there, he has no none of the confidence that Jefferson has in the future. Jefferson is the, is the pure American innocent. He he, uh, he thinks everything is going to work out, uh, and he's often surprised by uh, by the world when it doesn't work out that way. Adams is uh, is sure that things aren't going to work out. And he's pessimistic about what's going to happen. The biggest difference, I suppose, is that they, uh, Jefferson is the founder, really, or the creator of American exceptionalism, that we are a special nation, that we have a special responsibility to bring uh, republicanism, or what we, may, we would call democracy, to, to, the, to the world. And uh, we're, we're different from other nations. He, he creates American exceptionalism. Adams uh, uh, over and over again says, uh, we're not an exceptional nation. We're just as corrupt, just as sinful, just as, uh, as, as messy as any other nation. And it's, uh, there's no special providence for the United States, says Adams. So they couldn't differ more on, on the basic myths and dreams of, of what it is to be an American. And what about their attitudes toward uh Wealth and, and toward money. I mean, they, they. I think you say went somewhere in the book that, that 
Jefferson is a you know fears monarchy and right. and the Adams fears oligarchy. A few. Fear, yeah. uh, he he puts it to Jefferson at one point. He says, "You, Mister Jefferson, you fear the the one. I fear the few. The aristocracy." Uh, and he he believes, of course, in the natural inequality of society. There'll always be an oligarchy, and and that oligarchy will not be the most talented people, even under an electoral system. He does not believe the electorate will pick out the wisest and the most talented or the vir- most virtuous leaders. They're apt to get the the richest or the wiliest, uh, the schemers uh, elected. So he has great doubts about democracy. Uh, he takes on every American dream uh, in one way or another, which are really created by Jefferson, who, who is the, um, the exponent of, of Americanism. On the view of equality, this is where I think it's a crucial moment. And one of the things that I found uh, most interesting in, in investigating the book, to realize that Jefferson, when he said all, all men are created equal, he meant it literally. And, and I think it's widely shared by his colleagues, enlightened colleagues. This is the Lockean view that you start with a blank sheet, uh, a blank slate, which is etched and uh, by experience. So that the differences between people that we quite recognize as adults, that, that they, they are different because of the environment. In other words, Jefferson is, believes in nurture, not nature. Uh, and that's why he's obsessed by education. Adams is the opposite. He says we're born unequal, right from birth, and those differences will will stay with us through our lives. He tells Jefferson later in a letter, I, I visited a foundling hospital in Paris, and I saw babies four days old. He said, four days. And he says, already, some were ugly, some were beautiful. Some were smart, others were stupid. He, he says they're right there at the beginning and there's not much education can do about it. Well, that's not an American view, and I think we have stayed quite rightly with uh, the Jeffersonian premise, uh, even though we uh, we have a lot of talk of genetics and uh, DNA. Of course, Adams knew nothing of that, but uh, we 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 are still on the Jefferson. We still accept, accept the Jeffersonian premise. That's why we spend so much of our energy and funds promoting education because we believe deeply uh, that, that, um, that we have the possibility of, of changing people in the course of their lives. And uh, th- this is what separates these two men, a fundamental difference uh, of, uh, of human nature. How does Jefferson square the notion of all men being equal with his ownership of Many well, hundreds he, of slaves. He uh, he accepts uh, the uh, black Africans, uh, and, and, and that that from his from his premise, not all of his colleagues did. Uh, many people felt uh, that that uh, black Africans uh, were different um, because of the uh, African sun. It had scorched their skin, and there is the feeling that if they live in a temperate climate for enough time, and not not necessarily one lifetime that they will gradually whiten. That is a, a view widely uh, accepted by enlightened people in America. Again, going back to what we might call the environment, uh, the nurturing, uh, rather than nature. Uh, Jefferson is an exception in that respect, but he, he's, uh, his, uh, his view of, of equality is, is, 
is actually widely accepted by by others, even slaveholders, uh, in a way that he does not uh, he does not buy into that. So he he makes an exception to his own his own view. They have a falling out and in in the seventeen uh, nineties. Right. I mean, and it the falling out is is comes out of their different attitudes toward the French Revolution. Exactly. Jefferson is a true believer. He's an ideologue. Nobody in the country is more committed to the French Revolution. He and Thomas Paine, in their attitudes, in their ideas, are indistinguishable from one another. Uh, He's so much of a believer that in 1793, during the terror in France, his successor uh, writes to him and says, Mr. Jefferson... Uh, many of your friends, your aristocratic friends, are being guillotined by the thousands in Paris. And Jefferson writes this extraordinary letter back where he says, well, so be it, but if only an Adam and Eve are left alive and left free, it will be worth it. Well, that statement... Uh, oh, that's, <laughs> like, that's like Lenin. <laughs> well, it's uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien, who the <laughs> Irish uh, journalist and historian wrote a book about uh, the 1790s, and came across that letter, and he was appalled, and he he said, well, this makes Jefferson the pot Paul of, of the uh, of the <laughs> yeah. 18th century. Pot Paul, of course, being the uh, communist, uh, Cambodian communist leader who was willing to sacrifice millions of his own people for the sake of the cause. And, and Jefferson, whether he would have done that, in fact, of course, is another thing. Madison always dismissed these kinds of remarks as part of Jefferson's uh, rhetorical overkill. But that's how he felt about it. He, he was really not upset by the amount of deaths that were occurring during the terror because he is a really, he is a true believer. And he's as radical a, a, uh, an 18th century liberal as you could be, I think, in America and still be an elected uh, official. Uh, so he's, I find no difference between his ideas and, and Thomas Paine's. Paine simply says publicly what he believes. Jefferson holds back, particularly on religion. Uh, he, he believes the same as Paine does, that Christianity is something of a joke, a kind of uh, uh, absurdity. The Trinity is... Uh, hocus pocus, see, all of that, he says privately. He makes a couple of mistakes publicly in, in his notes on Virginia talking about religion. What does it matter if my neighbor believes in one God or no God? Uh, it doesn't hurt me. It doesn't break my arm. Well, that got him into a lot of trouble, That just that simple statement. And then in his opening uh, paragraph, to a preamble to his bill for religious freedom that, that eventually passed in Virginia in the 1780s, he makes uh, the statement that our uh, religious opinions, and he says opinions, not even faith, our religious opinions have no more importance to our civic life than our opinions of physics and, and geometry. Well, that's just not acceptable to most Americans in the 18th century, nor is it acceptable to Americans today. So, but that comes back to haunt him and gets him accused of being an atheist, which he was not. And he's very much on the defensive about his... Uh, his views of Christianity, which is why he concocts his his uh, book, his little uh, right, his, Jesus book, uh, yeah. cutting out all the references to love thy, loving thy neighbor, loving thyself, which he did believe. And he says, well, that's the true Christianity. But he denies all of the miracles and, and all of the divinity of Christ, which Adams did too. But Adams never mocks religion. 
as no, such. No, he takes religion seriously. Quite seriously, exactly, yeah. and, and uh, has respect for all religions, uh, even though he himself is a uh, Unitarian. That is to say, he, he uh, believes he, that, that Jesus was a great man, but not a divine figure. But he certainly does not um, mock uh, organized religion in the way Jefferson does. Talk about the division between Federalist and Republican in the 1790s. Right. And, and well, Adams, Adams is, a, is the one thing the, the two men do have in common, in addition to their support of the, the revolution, is their deep and abiding hatred of Alexander Hamilton, uh, both of them. Uh, Adams is a Federalist that is a believer in law and order and hierarchy and stability, but he's not a Hamiltonian-type Federalist. Hamilton is really out to create a fiscal military government in the United States in emulation of Great Britain with its banking system and its uh, funding system to create the United States uh, to be a a European-type state that could take on the Europeans, any of the France or, or Britain, on their own terms. It might take four or five decades but that's Hamilton's vision. He wants to build a Europe, European-type state with a large standing army, a navy, and all of the bureaucracy that goes into being a great power. Uh, that, of course, is not Jefferson at all. Jefferson wants an agrarian-dominated state without a powerful government and, and no standing army, certainly no standing army, uh, and wants to avoid uh, all of the instruments of coercion, of power, uh, he's a real libertarian in that sense. Uh, Adams is uh, somewhat uh, uh, between them, in, in a way, between Hamilton on one end, although he's a Federalist, and Jefferson on the other. So they differ politically. Uh, he is, of course, elected president. He's vice president in 1789, uh, Adams, uh, and expects to uh, follow, and he does follow, Washington as president, although he wins the 1796 election by only three electoral votes. And in those days, the man who gets the second most number of electoral votes is elected vice president. Of course, that's Jefferson. So you have the awkward situation of uh, uh, the man who's president, uh, identified as a Federalist. Uh, Jefferson has already emerged as the leader of this new Republican opposition. It's kind of awkward at the outset. Jefferson is the Secretary of State in uh, the Washington administration and is at the same time emerging as a leader of the opposition. That tension, that absurdity, if you will, uh, gets so so bad that, that he finally has to resign from his office. And he becomes the leader uh, of the opposition and is, is the vice president under, under Adams. Adams assumes that he's going to be reelected as Washington was uh, to a second term and so he's terribly humiliated by his defeat uh, in 1800, which was one of the most uh, vicious and scurrilous elections in our history, probably the worst in our history. Yeah, um, much worse than what's oh, what we're going, going on through now. today. Oh, the, the things yeah. said about the now the two men don't campaign, so they don't say anything uh, publicly about one another. Uh, which, of course, is uh, important for their reconciliation, but their, fo- their followers do, uh, accusing them of everything. Uh, Jefferson's an atheist and, and uh, uh, Adams is a monarchist. There's some justification for each of those charges, although Jefferson's certainly not an atheist, but they correctly realize that he did not like organized uh, religion. And in Adams's case, 
he was writing things uh, at the outset of the 90s in attacking the French Revolution, saying that our, our government is becoming, if it becomes so corrupt, the elections are becoming so corrupt, so faction-ridden, that we sooner or later are going to have to go to a hereditary uh, president and a hereditary senate. Well, that that particular uh, essay, which came out in 1791, is, is appalls Jefferson and, and is part of the uh, split that occurs. No one quite knows what to do about Adams because he seems to be supporting the English monarchy, which he does believe is a, is a great uh, the constitution, the English constitution, and he does really want the United States to emulate it as much as possible. He wants yes, he a, wants a, an upper house representing wealth and and uh, a lower house representing uh, the common the people. Common people. And, and because England has a house of commons, he continues to call England a republic, even though it has a hereditary monarch, which his colleagues, his fellow citizens, find confusing. Uh, but Adams's peculiar view is that as long as you have a house of commons, that is a lower house, which is representative of the people, then you're a republic. And he thinks that America will have to go the way of the English monarchy with a her, with a hereditary Senate and a hereditary president. Well, though that's so frightening to to Jefferson and his fellow Republicans that that aggravates the split between the the two men. In addition to the split over the French Revolution, Adams is very much, in fact, uh, very much a Burkean. He he thinks Burke is wonderful. And, and, of course, Paine and Burke are at odds. And yeah, so right. they're, they're the American counterparts of, of Jefferson and Adams. There are riots in the streets in, in the late 1790s. The 1798 but, 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 is yeah. as critical a period in our history. As close to a civil war we came until the actual civil war of 1861. Uh, people don't appreciate uh, how, how serious that was. There's a threat of a French invasion. Uh, which, of course, since it didn't happen, historians haven't taken seriously. Uh, the only comparable period, I think, in our history of fear of that sort is, is uh, early 1942, where we were frightened of, of a Japanese invasion, which led to us rounding up over 100,000 uh, uh, people of Japanese descent, uh, many of whom were American citizens, and putting them in concentration camps, something that we've just never... Uh, forgiven ourselves for. But it helps explain w w the fear that we had at the time, and, and it was signed off by Earl Warren and, 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 and FDR as well. Uh, you need to get back to that period of early 1942 to appreciate the fears that people had. Uh, since there was no Japanese invasion, the whole thing seems regrettable and, and a mistake. The same thing happened in 1798, but the fear was was real. Napoleon was invading European countries, uh, Holland and Italy and Germany, and creating puppet regimes, French puppet regimes. And the, the feeling was that they're going to come to America, and they've got a fifth column here of many, many Republicans who will support this French puppet regime. Ten percent of the population of Philadelphia at the time was French, made up of refugees from the, from the terror. Uh, and it, there was a sense of Frenchness everywhere and frightening. And this helps explain the Alien and Sedition Acts, which, of course, uh, have stained the Federalist reputation ever since. But you need a context to understanding why they did that. Adams favored it. Abigail was even more in favor of the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts than John. 
But he signed off on them, and of course that has always uh, been a, uh, a taint on his on his reputation. But one needs to recover that there were there was terror in the streets. There were, Adams talks about it, uh, and and tells Jefferson about it in their later letters, uh, trying to remind him of how scary things were in 1798. Well, in Philadelphia, people were throwing rocks at each That's other. Right. I and mean, the, and the... Mobs were... Uh, mobs. He feared, he feared for his life. Uh, his his servants uh, had uh, guns ready to keep the mob from breaking down the door. That That's the kind of feeling it was. It, so it was a, a frightening moment that we need to recover if we're going to understand actions like the Alien and Sedition Acts. All right. Adams feels so humiliated by the loss of the election of 1800 that he doesn't stay in Washington for Jefferson's inauguration. That's right. I mean, the only president, uh, the only man who's ever done that, not stay for the inauguration of his successor, he gets a a 4 a.m. stage back to Quincy as fast as he could to avoid the humiliation of of having to witness uh, his successor's inauguration. Jefferson then now becomes president for eight years. Right. And the m- much of his policy, if I'm not mistaken, is, is really a long... He, he, he borrows it from, from the Federalists. Well, he... Not really. I think the one thing he keeps is the bank, which he has to. It's a chartered bank. It's got a 20-year charter. Uh, and and the, Fed, the Republicans work to destroy that, and they don't renew the charter because uh, it expires in, in, eight, in 1810. Jefferson is no longer in office, but Madison lets it expire, uh, despite the advice of Gallatin, who thinks the bank is actually probably a pretty good idea. Uh, but they're ideologues. They, and they, so he destroys the... He, he, he reduces the army uh, to uh, uh, 3,000 men. I mean, for a continental-sized government, 3,000 men... Uh, is is on no army at all. Uh, he cuts back the. He thinks that the Federalists had exaggerated the bureaucracy. I mean, when you look at the the, the War Department, it's got uh, a secretary and a couple of aides and three secre- secretaries. I mean, three uh, aides. I mean, this is just ridiculous. This is the Pentagon, uh, and and he thinks that's over overblown. The Federalists have expanded uh, offices, so he cuts the, the civic civil service. Uh, and, and cuts back on taxation. There's no. If you lived under Jefferson's administration, you wouldn't know there was a national government except for the delivery of the mail, which is still a federal responsibility. Otherwise, how would you know that you had a federal government? Whatever taxes are, are tariffs on, on certain goods coming in, which are paid at the border, and you wouldn't know that you were experiencing a federal government. There's no taxation of any sort that would touch you. So this is a government that scarcely... Uh, exists in the minds of people, and that's what Jefferson wanted. He, in fact, wants to go back. He tries to go back as much as he can to what was the what were the Articles of Confederation, which presumably had been scrapped in 1787. Jefferson really believes that most affairs of life should be handled by the states and not the national government. So he's an extreme uh, anti-federalist, you might say. Uh, and, and tries to implement that. And he's frightened to death of war, like all radicals. He feels war breeds monarchy. There's some truth to that when you think about how uh, how all of our wars, every one of them has enhanced the uh, executive Power, powers, yeah, yeah. with the exception of Madison. That's what's interesting. Madison fought the War of 1812, and, of course, it was an utter failure. 
And, but it was self-consciously a failure because Madison said, I am not going to enhance the power of the presidency to, simply because it, it will have, have bad repercussions for republicanism. He's willing to suffer the humiliations of the losses that we had in, in our fighting the, the British in the War of 1812. So that, with that exception, every other war has enhanced the power of the presidency. And so Jefferson's view, which is quite the common radical view, that uh, that monarchs benefit from war, and that's how they've enhanced their power. So that's why Jefferson goes to extreme lengths to use any alternative to military force, which is his economic sanctions or his his embargo, yeah. which is withholding of trade, which we still see as yes. a, as uh, a means of of avoiding the use of military force. Uh, I mean, Jefferson's ideas about the least government possible are still. Very much current, of course. But then, but the, the reversal, of course. Jefferson's supposed to be the uh, founder of the Democratic Party. Well, the Democratic Party is a different kind of view now about uh, government. Uh, the liberal position in the 18th century was minimal government, as I say, because of the fear of what governments yeah. have created. You see, they had inherited a position where monarchs had, in, had created distinctions, inequalities. They'd given out titles. They'd given out monopolies. So it's natural to, for a radical who's opposed to monarchy to be small government, minimal government. Right. Uh, we live in a different world as a product from, uh, from the uh, late 19th century on that's been reversed. So the liberal position now is to use government to uh, bring about equality and, and a, 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 a less hierarchical society. All right. Talk, talk now about what you call a reconciliation. I mean, after the ele- election of 1800, Adams and Jefferson don't speak to each other. Right. For, for a, 12 for, years. For 12 uh, years. They, after, they, they, they just not communicating. There is a, a, I could mention what happened in 1804. Abigail, uh, who had been very close to Jefferson and, and really admired him, he says, he, she said at one point, he's a, in the 1780s, he's a choice sort of man, what a really great man. She writes a letter of condolence to him because she learns of the death of of his uh, younger daughter, whom, whom Abigail had known and had had actually hosted briefly in in London when she arrived from from Virginia uh, before Jefferson could pick her up, she writes this letter of condolence and expresses her sorrow partly because she had just lost a son, an older son, thirty years old, who had died of alcoholism, and Jefferson responds warmly. And and maybe that could have developed, but he makes a mistake. He says to, well, there's only one thing that irritated me. Your your husband and I really agree on everything, and there's only one thing that I found objectionable about his administration, and that was his appointment of the midnight judges. Uh, Those appointments made between the election of November, uh, which which, uh, Adams had, had lost, and, of course, in those days, the inauguration of the president doesn't take place till March, so there's a good uh, five months of, of time. And, and the Federalists not only passed legislation but uh, created uh, 16 different judgeships, and, and uh, uh, Adams yeah. appointed men to these positions. And this, he says, is, was a mistake. Well, Abigail comes back harshly and defends Adams, and she's really angry. Jefferson then tries to respond, and and the next thing you know, she's back with another charge, and Jefferson must have wondered, what have I got myself into? <laughs> and he, he drops it. And, and then uh, in, in eight, the man who really makes 
possible a reconciliation is Dr. Benjamin Rush, uh, who is a very important figure in the in the founding, a kind of second level founder, is friendly with both men, but mostly with Adams, and he works for two years to bring these two men together because he feels the country, posterity, needs their thoughts uh, of these two great patriots, and he wants to reconcile them. And he works very nicely back and forth, uh, telling each of them that the other one loves them, and and that's enough finally. But it takes two years. Uh, That's how bitter they are. In fact, when Jefferson finally says, all right, I'll agree to write him, but let's just keep Mrs. Adams out of it because she and I just don't agree at all. He already, he remembers how how he was burned in 1804. And so they start and they have 150, I think it's 158 letters with Adams writing three to every one of Jefferson's. But that becomes understandable because at one point, Adams, he realizes that he's in a different league of celebrity, if you will, status, if you will. He's in a different celebrity status. He says to Jefferson, how many letters a year do you get from your correspondence? And Jefferson says, well, I get 2,000 and something. And Adams is shocked. He says, because he only gets 200 and something. Well, that's (laughs) a tenth. I mean, we have to understand that, that Jefferson is, is a darling of the Enlightenment. He, he is a, a, a platonic figure, a, an enlightened ruler of this new Republican world across the Atlantic. And, and he's writing to Europeans. Uh, Alexander Humboldt, the great naturalist, is exchanging letters and visits Jefferson in his presidency and exchanges letters with him. He's writing to the Tsar of Russia. I mean, Jeff, uh, Adams is not in that league. He's not dealing with those kinds of people. And he knows it. And he knows that he's just never going to have that kind of status through the rest of eternity, he, uh, he predicts. So, so that's, he, he says to Jefferson, don't worry about it. I love writing. And, and he does. He explodes. But he's, he, he's, he's sassy and, and uh, facetious and joking. I mean, at one point, to give you an idea of how, uh, how, how, how he would treat Jefferson, this is 1815. Napoleon's been defeated. Uh, the Bourbons are back in the throne of France. And, and Adams says to Jefferson, so what do you think of the French Revolution now, Mr. Jefferson? I mean, any uh, other person might have said, well, that's enough. I'm not putting up with that. But Jefferson's um, politeness, his, his willingness to put up with this kind of razzing, uh, and his really, I think, deep love for Adams, knowing that the man is really uh, beneath the crusty surface is an amiable person, he, he just lets those kinds of things slide. Uh, and that enables the correspondence to go on. It's a kind of superficial correspondence because they avoid um, really sensitive subjects. Well, like they don't slavery. talk about slavery. Well, but. there's a little bit of talk. When In 1819, they can't avoid it over the Missouri crisis. But uh, Adams is, for the first time, I think, is sensitive. He knows this is not an issue to, to push at Jefferson. And he more or less takes the view... He says himself, I'm not a slaveholder. I never have owned slaves, and I'm opposed to it. But he says to Jefferson, look, you guys, meaning you planters, have got this problem. And they know it's a problem. They, they talk about this. If the, anything breaks the union up, it'll be this, slavery. So they're already aware how how dangerous this is. And Adam says to him, look, you, you guys got this problem. I'm going to let you handle it. You and you fellow planters handle it. He's not going to be an advocate for for abolition. He's not going to come out in the way his son did, of course, later in in the Congress. But but also Adams thinks that the 
idea of an American republic is going to be overwhelmed by ambition and and vanity and greed and money. Right. They're they're pessimistic. Actually, both of them are pretty pessimistic uh, about uh, the future because they have all of these banks being created with paper money everywhere, and it's scary and frightening since neither of them understood what a bank was. I mean, Adam says at one point, any, any bank that issues more paper uh, than it has gold and silver in the vaults to cover is a cheat, a cheat upon somebody. Well, no bank could operate without extending more paper. Now, some of them went wild. I mean, one in my own state of Rhode Island, Gloucester, Rhode Island, issued, had something like $600,000 plus out in paper, which says, we, the bank of, of Gloucester, promised to pay the bear on demand and so on. Well, they only had $86 in the bank in gold <laughs> and silver to cover that, and this is the first bank that fails in American history. That, that was frightening to people, but those, those bank bills, uh, those, that currency is really f- fundamental to the economy. It's capital, and it helps explain why, um, why the American economy becomes so successful. The founders were frightened of paper money, so they forbid the states from printing paper money uh, that was one of the reasons why Madison in, in, in his Virginia plan wanted uh, a, the Congress to have a negative over all state legislation. Every, every bill would presumably have to come to the Congress to be okayed. He was frightened, particularly of, of paper money, because it creates inflation, was hurting gentry creditors. Well, that was too impractical. And the the convention ended up having Article One, Section Ten, which forbids the states from doing certain things. They can't pass tariffs, and they can't print money. That's probably a good thing. Uh, but the, the the economy would have been stifled if that had been rigidly enforced. So what the bank, what the states do is charter banks, which in turn printed the money. Right. And so you have millions of dollars. Uh, I think on the eve of the Civil War, ten thousand different bills are circulating around. It was crazy, but it was fundamental. It's capital right. that people are being they're using it. And, and, of course, Jefferson and Adams don't understand this. Even Hamilton, who did understand banks, uh, was bewildered by the number. He, he died in 1804. He was bewildered already by the number of, of banks that were creating all this paper. He, that is not what he wanted. He wanted his Bank of the United States to monopolize Banking. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a crazy world that's emerging. And all of those founders who lived into this de- democratic, crazy uh, uh, economy were disillusioned with what they had wrought. Uh, this is not the kind of country they wanted. It's much too democratic, much too wild. And uh, was I mean, it, it's what we've got today. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, and, 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 and they both foresee this. Yes. Although uh, I would say the the antebellum period is a little wilder than than today, we, we the federal government now has a monopoly of the money, and that's what happens after the Civil War. <clears throat> the federal government comes in, and, and taxes all of these uh, state banks out of business, and monopolizes greenbacks. We don't have any state banks issuing money anymore. Right. Uh, that okay. that's really one of the fundamental changes. It's not as much emphasized as it should be uh, that occurs with the Civil War. And counterfeiting dies. Counterfeiting flourished in the uh, in, in the antebellum period because they couldn't have enough paper money. They were even able to uh, to they were even willing 
users, entrepreneurs, business people were willing to have counterfeit money as long as people accepted it. Right. And they would close their eyes and wink and let it go, uh, which goes to show you that, uh, well, the Bitcoin shows that anything could be money if people will accept it, allow it to pass. Well, all right. So Jefferson survives. I mean, right. Hamilton, and he does. I mean, his notions of American exceptionalism and American virtue. Right. And, uh, and American equality. And American uh, equality. Uh, Lincoln is really the man who, who, who as you know, in, yeah. in 1858 says all honor. He uses Jefferson. Uh, yeah. All honor to, to Mr. Jefferson. And what's extraordinary in those speeches that Lincoln gave on, on the eve of the war is, is his realization of how diverse America had become. And, and of course, nothing like the diversity of today. But, but for him, it, it was... And you can imagine the, the idea of a nation. A nation means a tribe, uh, a single ethnicity. And here's this United States with, uh, as, uh, as Lincoln says, we've got Frenchmen, we've got Spaniards, we've got Germans, we've got Irish, we've got all these different Scots. How, how are we going to hold together? We're not a nation. And that's a concern that people have increasingly through the period, uh, the antebellum period. And Lincoln says, well, we have an answer to that. And it's that good old, he says, that good old Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. And he says, and this is true for all men in all times. And then he says, all these immigrants who came here have a bond with the founders. And then he goes on with an image, what I, which I, I find still startling. He says, as if they are flesh of the flesh and blood of the blood of the founders. Well, that's just an extraordinary statement which helps explain why these founders still have some uh, meaning for us. He's saying that that declaration that they created, that Declaration of Independence, is what gives them a kind of blood relationship to everybody who comes after, even if they have no uh, blood, actual blood relationship with the people. And, and therefore, a nation like ours, which is not really a nation, can be held together as a single people, as one people, and, and that, that the Declaration promises. So it's an extraordinary moment, and from that moment, Jefferson has uh, ascends to a kind of dominance that transcends his own weakness and his own failings and his, particularly his racist views that to give him a kind of immortality for the country uh, that, that I think uh, continues to, to, to live. Now, who knows what what historians will do with with, uh, with Jefferson because he is tainted by by his uh, by his slaveholding, and in addition by his uh, quite explicit racist views uh, made in in his uh, in in the one book he wrote, uh, Notes on the State of Virginia. But it's Lincoln, I think, who who makes Jefferson the hero, and then of course FDR. Uh, building that memorial on, on the uh, tidal basin. I mean, there's no such memorial to Adams. I mean, this is a huge memorial, right on, on right off the mall. Uh, there's nothing like that for for poor John Adams, uh, and he knows uh, he's he understands. I think that he's not his views are simply not capable of sustaining a nation. You can't have a a guy who's cynical and and denies the uh, uh, the the exceptional nature of your country. To be the spokesman for your uh, for your for your nation, but today, I mean, the Jefferson idea and uh, the Lincoln idea seems to be under a good deal of stress. Oh, definitely, and but there's no alternative. If we repudiate 
Jefferson, then what are we left with? What have we got? Uh, there's no. We have to really, because we're not a, a, a nation in a, any ethnic sense. We don't have a, a national. We're better equipped to, because of of that. Better equipped to handle immigrants, and we we are. We got everybody in the world is here, and and we somehow are holding to be, together better than some of the. Uh, the existing nations in in Europe that are basically ethnically based. Uh, you know, the French really can't believe that all those Arabs who had lived in France for four generations are really French. Anybody who's lived in four generations in our country, however, wherever they came from, is is an American. Uh, they can't accept that because they still have a kind of ethnic base to their Frenchness. And we don't have an ethnic base. There's no such thing as an American. And, you know, as I say, we, to, to be an American is not to be somebody, but to believe in something. And what do we believe in? We believe in what the founders said and what Jefferson said. All men are created equal. That is why your book is so good. Well, thank you. Because it, it brings into the present the meaning of the past, which is still with us. Right. Gordon, it's a, I hope everybody listening reads that, reads that book. Well, thank you. I hope so, too. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Gordon S. Wood about his new book, Friends Divided, Long Friendship Maintained Between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. A very fine book indeed. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.